From Interfaith Alliance, this is State of Belief Radio. I'm Interfaith Alliance President Reverend Paul Rauschenbusch broadcasting this week from New York City. The law requires that interracial marriage and same-sex marriage must be recognized as legal in every state in the nation. It was a bright blue sky over the White House on Wednesday as we gathered for the signing of the Respect for Marriage Act. Take a listen to me on the lawn at the White House as I reflected in the moment of how I was feeling at that historic signing of the Respect for Marriage bill. Hey everybody, uh, talking to you from the White House, we're about to witness the signing of the Respect for Marriage Act. And I just want to share with all of our friends, our partners, um, all of our collaborators who work so hard to make this day happen, how happy I am, how filled with joy uh, that we've arrived at this day where marriage equality is, is a reality. Just such an important moment for the whole country as a whole as we continue to expand rights and dignity for all, but also very personal for me and so many other uh same-sex couples as well as interracial couples who felt our full dignity was being reaffirmed uh, yesterday by the actions of the White House and the Congress. For months, Interfaith Alliance worked in partnership with an unprecedented coalition of religious leaders and activists to demand respect for LGBTQI and interracial couples. And together with so many others, we got it done. On this week's show, we'll be looking at the significance of this achievement and the specifics of the legislation that pertain to religious freedom and LGBTQ rights. And think about the work that lies ahead for this growing, morally driven movement for inclusion and equality. I'll talk with the Reverend Tracy Blackman, Associate General Minister of the United Church of Christ, an unwavering supporter of the Respect for Marriage Act and the communities it affirms. You'll also hear from Mary Bonato, Senior Attorney at GLBTQ Legal Advocates and Defenders, and Katie Joseph, Director of Policy and Advocacy at Interfaith Alliance, both brilliant attorneys who helped push the Respect for Marriage Act across the finish line. Mary's been a leader in advancing the rights of LGBTQ people under the law. She was one of three attorneys who argued before the U.S. Supreme Court in Oberfeld, arguing state bans on same-sex marriage should be ruled unconstitutional. You can hear State of Belief on the radio and get the podcast on Apple Podcasts and all other podcast platforms. Every week, I am in conversation with the most fascinating and impactful civic and religious leaders across the nation. You won't want to miss it. Please subscribe today. State of Belief Radio is made possible in great part by the generous support of our listeners. If you've made a donation, I really want to thank you. And if you haven't pitched in yet, information on how you can help keep this show on the air is available at stateofbelief.com. And you can find out more about Interfaith Alliance and join in that work at interfaithalliance.org. And now to my first guests. It was essential to break down the God versus gay narrative that conservatives have been tirelessly fomenting for years. And a broad coalition of diverse faith leaders and groups did just that as they worked together for passage of the Respect for Marriage Act. The legal strategy was just as essential, especially around the religious freedom amendments that were attached to the bill. 
I wanted to look at the lessons learned. And there is literally nobody better to talk to about this than Mary Bonato, senior attorney at GLBTQ Legal Advocates and Defenders, and my colleague Katie Joseph, Director of Policy and Advocacy at Interfaith Alliance. Mary, Katie, welcome to State of Belief Radio. Thank you. Thanks so much, Paul. <laughs> so, you know, I think we're all thawing out from last yesterday being <laughs> on the lawn at the White House, but this, you know, this was this week was a historic week. It was a it was an impressive moment and I would love to start with both of yours just emotional resonance for the moment uh, before we dive into kind of some of the legal and social ramifications. How did it feel to be there? Mary, why don't you start? You know, I um, I was ecstatic. And I was remembering back in 1996 when DOMA, the Federal Defense Energy Act, was signed by around midnight by President Clinton. And to think about this celebration of marriages and families and children and couples um, as you know a core American value, as about right, about justice, about love. All of that was so inspiring to actually see that at this point we have harmonized technically the Supreme Court, the Congress of the United States and the executive branch with the presidency all saying, yeah, these marriages are here to stay and they're important and they're entitled to dignity and respect and equality is a fundamental American value. Like, hey, it was a great day. <laughs> I love that. That is so beautiful. Uh, we're going to get into this more, but I, one of the things that kind of slapped me in the face when we started talking about this with uh, with Katie Joseph, who I, I definitely want to hear from next, but was the DOMA was still on the books. Yes. On, you know, and, and I was like, what? How could that be? You know, but Doma was still on the book. Katie, how did it feel like to you to, to, to be there? Well, Mary used the word celebration, and I think that is the best possible way to describe the mood on the South Lawn yesterday. It was incredible to see young Gen Z activists who had flown in from Florida, who were leading the walkouts around the Don't Say Gay Bill, to activists who have been working on this for quite literally decades. Um, they're to celebrate this incredible accomplishment with families and partners and their own children and grandchildren um, as well. Um, this is a major moment um, and it did, not, it did not come easily um, and it did not come quickly. Um, so it's really important that we are taking the time to, um, to celebrate together. Yeah. I, I, I think, uh, I think I said, uh, my, I was there, you know, with my husband and, uh, and we were, we were joking. It feels like kind of a wonky rave, you know, <laughs> policy wonks and, you know, and, uh, you know, political activists and, you know, and, and and plain folks like us who like are you know, feel like this is like our our family and you know that was really the moving part and and I really appreciate Mary what you said about the trajectory because this is not this has a long trajectory and and I thought that the White House actually did a really good I was not expecting kind of an arc I was kind mm -hmm. of like okay we go we sign we go say bye bye you know and they actually provided kind of a 
I walked past and, and, and it was yes. so moving, you know, for, for Representative Pelosi to like to think about when she came to the Congress and, and had to talk about AIDS and then, you know, and then her work with uh, marriage equality. And it's it's been an arc and it was just a you know, it's it's so we, we uh, you know, for Brad and I to, to be there together and to like, you know, imagine our family and just feel really like. It was it was joyful, but it was also poignant. And you think of all the families for whom this was like a, such an important moment, and also all the families who didn't enjoy this, in the you know who maybe died at some point and were not able to recognize their partner in death, and all the all the families who who had to lament the the way that the 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 laws were stacked against them as far as taxes and as far as all sorts of other like kind of the mundane but real things of marriage and so it, it felt like that that extraordinary um extraordinary moment what i'd love to to kind of take go back because one of the thing one of the reasons i wanted to talk to um you know both of you was that this didn't kind of fall out of nowhere this was constructed and very intentionally over a long period of time. Mary, I know you have a particular vantage point on the construction of this bill and then also thinking through, and this is very much has to do with our work at Interfaith Alliance, like the role that religion played for good and also, you know, not so good in the construction of this and how we navigated that. Mary, could you offer us some sort of big uh, entry into that conversation? Yes, I'll just raise a couple of big picture points. You know, one is with respect to this law, this now law, uh, the Respect for Marriage Act, which was um, first drafted by LGBTQ and other advocates, but really under the leadership of the office of Representative Nadler and his key staff person, Heather Sawyer, who brought us all together. And, and this was in the time when the, the Defense of Marriage Act was in effect. The federal government was actively disrespecting marriages um, from people in Massachusetts, for example, and then from Iowa and other states. Um, and to remedy that, to say, like, you can't have somebody, you know, pay into Social Security over a lifetime and then have them show up, as one of my clients did, at a Social Security office after his spouse dies and say, you don't count. You just can't do that. <laughs> um, what, what year are we talking about when you were, when you you can recall the, with, with Representative Nadler? 2010. 2010. So I'm doing math. Twelve years ago, that is over a decade's worth of work. Yes. However, the bill had to be changed a lot because, you know, this gets to your other big picture point, which is that the law has changed because of the challenges to the Defense of Marriage Act federal piece that culminated in the Windsor decision. You know, that federal non-recognition had to go away and the federal government did what it is supposed to do, which is respect marriages that are valid where they're celebrated. So not only did that um, benefit, if you will, um, provide the same protections to people who were married in Massachusetts or in Connecticut or in Iowa or in New York, ultimately, but it also meant that people who had married in those states would be respected um, when they returned home to Texas, when they returned home to Arizona. And you started seeing, um, even though we had states that were not allowing same-sex couples to marry, started seeing those states have to grapple with the fact that they had married same-sex couple and had to make adjustments uh how you file your taxes in the state you know usually follows your federal 
So we got to maybe allow that now. So it was a transformative period in a, in a lot of respects. But then Obergefell itself in 2015, you know, obviously made a difference in terms of making marriage the law of the land for all states, regardless of their amendments or laws in place. But then the second question in Obergefell had to do with whether marriages are respected from state to state. And Obergefell said, yes, they should be. And it was really tied to the marriage decision itself. But this bill does what, if I can just skip ahead for a second, because this is also about DOMA, um, what this bill does is has the Congress build expressly on its own power in the Constitution to say that it can prescribe by general laws the effect of acts, records, and judicial proceedings. And we have here the Congress saying we are prescribing that the effect of a valid marriage that is valid where it is celebrated is that it will be respected by states and state governments, by the, fed, the feds and the federal government and federal agencies. It doesn't reach private parties. You know, as Tammy Baldwin, Senator Tammy Baldwin says, it's a humble bill, but it's also a mighty one. And it means that at least when it comes to uh, legal protections offered by states and responsibilities, you should be able to expect those to be in place no matter where you live. Mary, let me or, or, or Katie can answer this. Did we was the urgency around this bill um, triggered by Dobbs? Where the threat, I mean, because because, you know, the Supreme Court has already made that explicit, but then um, Dobbs made it seemed, if not imminent, possibly or predictably in the future that that very right that they had once granted could be grabbed away. And we saw that, of course, with Roe v. Wade. So I'm just curious, am I getting that right? Katie, do you want to start? Sure. So when the Supreme Court handed down the Dobbs decision that rolled back the right to access abortion as a matter of privacy, we saw in it a concurring decision written by Justice Thomas making clear that, of course, access to abortion is not the only um, type of um, service or aspect of privacy that has been recognized by the court, and at least from Justice Thomas's perspective, should potentially be reconsidered. Um, so we actually see uh, in the within the umbrella of privacy rights, marriage, personal um, intimate relationships um, and activities, access to contraception, um, as well as marriage. Um, and so this really raised an alarm bell um, for folks who have been working on this for a long time. Um, we've known that Supreme Court decisions um, are hugely impactful, um, but don't exist in a vacuum. There is always the possibility that they may be revisited. And so right. as <laughs> we certainly saw, I mean, you know, the, we have a very right. strong case in point. And I thought just to your point about uh, uh, Justice Thomas, like the fact that his decision was referenced, I think by President Biden, you know, I mean, shows the, 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 the kind of um, specter that that created for for many people uh, who were working on this bill. I'm sorry for interrupting. I, I just thought that was a really interesting moment when he was quoting a Supreme Court justice as a case in point on why we needed to do this work. And I think what what's relevant here is that um, you know judicial opinions build on each other, and so there's a line of cases around 
the right to privacy and what that means in all these different aspects of our personal lives um, that built on a lot of the work that came um, in the years leading up to and after the Roe decision came down. And so from a legal perspective, um, there's a there's a red flag um, that's raised when you pull out some of the foundational law um, that has provided the framework for all of these other things, including including marriage. Mm. And if I can just add to that briefly, even before the Dobbs concurrence, there have been statements usually issued in conjunction with um, dissents from the court's refusal to take a case and grant review in a case from Justices Thomas and Alito complaining bitterly about Obergefell. I mean, there's, of course, their initial dissents in Obergefell as well to point to. But this was a new level. This was coming in the context of the reversal of a fundamental right with a incredibly rigid historical analysis in which the autonomy and personal rights of women and trans and non-binary people who were pregnant counted for nothing. So yeah. this was to have this concurrence then was a shot across the bow. It was not nothing. This was a new level. And I think it was appropriate, therefore, for the Congress to take the step it did. The law of the land remains Obergefell. Should there be any challenge, it should be rejected because Obergefell is the law of the land. And should it proceed, Obergefell was correctly decided on both liberty grounds, due process, as well as equality. So this was an opinion, Dobbs that is, that was framed up by the court um, as a due process liberty privacy decision. But I think people forget that one of the foundational cases in this area around marriage is Loving versus Virginia, which is the best named case ever which struck down the remaining state bans on interracial marriage, which had existed at the time of the Collins in many places and continued. You know, Virginia, as the president referenced yesterday, had a criminal law in effect. Um, so this bill, again, I think appropriately, you know, said we should grab this moment. This is terrifying to people. And it's not just a concern of destabilizing married same-sex couples and really LGBTQ people generally by suddenly saying you don't count anymore for purposes of equality and liberty, but also to say that when it comes to race, ethnicity, and national origin, that we are not going to tolerate discrimination um, in those areas either. The Loving case is so <laughs> is so interesting. And people are like, oh, come on, interracial marriage. Like, who is opposed to that? Well, guess what? You know, I mean, if you want to talk about originalist thinking, you know, I mean, like this and by the way, and we're going to I want to I want to start talking about kind of religious freedom and these questions, because religion was a major um, instigator and promoter of like the sin of interracial marriage. And the idea that, oh, I mean, how could a society allow such a thing? And now you're kind of like, oh, come on. Like, who? that would never happen. That's within my lifetime. You know, I mean, I, you know, that's like not in, in the 60s, 95% of Americans thought interracial marriage was, was like inappropriate, if not sinful and against the law. So, so this is not like way back when. This is recent history. It's crazy to remember that, but it's really important that we do. Um, you know, talking about religion and also scripture was quoted in support of 
the bans on interracial marriage. So when we like, so when people start trotting out scripture, guess what? You're like, you know, and so I want to turn, you know, to religion because religion played a really important role in this because of the debates around um, marriage equality within certain religious traditions. I want to preface it by reminding the listeners that actually in Almost every religious tradition, the support for same-sex marriage is overwhelming at this point. It's been a transformation, but it's been an overwhelming transformation. This is not, this is not, you know, both sidesism. Actually, in many traditions, like in Judaism, it's something like eighty-five percent. It's like overwhelming. My guests are Mary Bonato from GLBTQ Legal Advocates and Defenders and Interfaith Alliances, Katie Joseph. Religion still played an, I would say, an, an really important, I was going to say outsized, but that's whatever, that's, you know, an important role in this. And so there was a, I, I'm, I'm going to say it wrong, so you guys will both jump in and com- correct me, a religious freedom amendment, do I have that right, or religious liberty amendment or something? Well, Mary, maybe you can just walk us down that path a little bit and talk about why that was necessary and some of what you saw as the important elements of that that also allowed for this this humble but potent i love that i hadn't heard that by uh, uh senator baldwin potent bill to, to move forward so here's the thing that's important to remember about this bill and it helps to to tee up the religious issues as well this is a really a status quo bill we have obergefell and windsor and under those decisions the states and the federal government have to respect marriages. That was what the Congress was trying to concretize and did. That's what the House did. However, when it went to the Senate, and you know, when it went to the Senate, a number of different um, religious liberty advocates and faiths themselves engaged the process. At that point, amendments started coming forward to say to get to the 60 votes that you need, you know. Maybe that's some Democrats too, but definitely to get Republicans, quote unquote, religious liberty had to be protected. Then the question is, what does that mean? And I believe that the needle that um, Senator Baldwin, Senator Collins, and others were trying to thread was to keep this a status quo bill, to not provide new advantages to, quote unquote, either side uh, in the so-called culture wars. Okay, so that really informs everything. However, I want to say that I, the way I understand some of the process is that there are people um, on the, you know, on the, I mean, I don't feel like I'm anti-religious liberty. I'm just going to say that, okay? But people on the other side of this, advocacy side of this, who, um, who are really afraid, who are really afraid and experience um, respect, legal respect for LGBTQ people, um, as an existential threat. And so how do you guard against that? And so honestly, some of it is as simple as saying, as this law does, that federal constitutional and statutory protections for religious liberty remain what they are, whatever they may be, okay? Um, so that's there. There's a finding, okay? This, again, was something that all of these were requested by other people, not by Senator Baldwin, for example. Um, you know, a finding that you know, sort of quoting Obergefell, that there are um, the people who have diverse beliefs about the role of gender and marriage 
are decent and honorable people and their beliefs deserve respect. Um, but that doesn't really help anybody. It just says everybody's opinions are <laughs> decent and honorable. Okay. Um, and then goes <laughs> so, on. So was that actually part of an amendment that was actually Correct. in? Correct. That's really interesting. Um, I don't think I knew that that was like we're good people. You know what I mean? Like it's almost plaintive. It's like, okay, you know, I, I correct me if I'm wrong. You know I mean? I know I'm stepping over, by the way, I do want to say very quickly, you do not have to question the people who are saying religious liberty, you know, and doing this because we're a religious freedom organization at Interfaith Alliance and we believe in inclusive religious freedom for everyone. And so like, so you, we're not anti-religious freedom. <laughs> We're just trying to find the right way that it can function yes. in society that, that gives dignity to everyone. So your, your, your questions around this are totally valid. Okay, so that's, so you have the findings and the findings go on to say that millions of same-sex and interracial and inter-ethnic couples have married and they deserve the stability, the respect that marriage provides for them and their families and their children. So, you know, so it's acknowledging people. Um, and then we have the First Amendment piece you know, and the constitutional protections, and they are what they are. Um, but then we get into some other measures, okay? And I want to talk about those. So one is something that's confused a certain number of people. And it says that nothing in the Respect for Marriage Act, and again, what is Respect for Marriage Act? It's about how the states, how government, agencies have to respond to people who are married, okay? So nothing in that applies to tax exempt statuses and contracts and grants and so on that don't come around from that are not related to a marriage so it's just saying like this when it comes to like this is those things are for a different day those conversations and debates are going on about the proper reach of non-discrimination laws insofar as people experience them as interfering with their free exercise rights those will all happen rma does not affect them so there's that. Yeah. But then there's last piece that I would like to mention, um, which is this. And it is something that um, I'm hearing, I'm seeing some people begin to write about. And it's a piece that says, um, it uses a definition of religious organization that comes from the IRS, from the tax code. And it says religious organizations, and then they spell it out to some degree, houses of worship, uh, religious educational institutions, other religious nonprofits, shall not be required to provide services for, or their employees should, don't have to engage in solemnization of a marriage or celebration of a marriage. So we have something that is limited to certain defined religious organizations already acknowledged as such by the IRS. They don't have to participate in solemnization. You know, my point has always been like, whoever said they would have to be. I mean, that is protected. I don't think anybody who knows about the law really expects otherwise. I'm sure somebody will disagree now that I've said that. But, <laughs> you know, I mean, well, that that is protected. And why would yeah. we want to have that fight? Yeah. So that's yeah. one piece. Yeah. The second piece is a celebration piece. And that is an area where I have to say it's partly about 60 votes. Um, you know, again, what are, what are we talking about when we're talking about the celebration of the marriage, the party after the solemnization? think what it means and we've confronted this in states including in states where i work um where to get a marriage law passed in a state like in maine we had to say you know our public accommodations law is not going to apply to 
a house of worship or its pertinent buildings if they rent them out. You know, it's not going to apply um, when it comes to who they're going to rent to. And this, except this, um, and this bill sort of says the same thing. Just to like, when we talk about celebration, we're talking about like a, a the party space. after the marriage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. The parish hall. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, I would. So again, just because you can discriminate or you can exclude doesn't mean you have to, right? <laughs> so you know, I'd like to think that if you're the parish hall, that's the only appropriate venue for any decent-sized celebration within 50 miles. You might figure out a way to help people out, but this would say you don't have to. That's yeah. what this. That's how this reads. Yeah, some people are upset about that. Katie, how do you, I mean, I. it sounds like that's not changing anything. And oh, But may, may, how, how, how do you read that part of the law? I, I think the characterization of this bill as a status quo bill is entirely appropriate. I think that over the course of time, we've seen how laws like the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, RIFRA, have been used in ways that they were not originally intended when they were passed. But it is important to still in a bill like this being signed in 2022 to reference um, and affirm existing protections under federal law without going further. I think that Mary, you're entirely right that if there is a if there's a spot in this bill where some questions may be asked, and of course, no bill is going to answer every question. That's part of why mm-hmm. lawyers have the have the jobs that we do. Um, but if there's any place in this bill that that might um, Um, raise questions, it's around what celebration might mean. Um, But I I will say two things about the the way that the bill was slightly amended in the Senate. Um, It makes really clear that we're talking about rights arising out of a marriage. Um, That's kind of legal magic words, um, but it gets to just how narrow um, this bill really is in practice. So when we're potentially going to see nonprofits attempt to push a license to discriminate um, and even mischaracterize what this bill does, it's written right there in in very clear language. We're talking about um, rights related to the status of a legal marriage alone, not all this other stuff whether it's about who you'll serve in your bakery or your web design business or whatever else, that's not what we're getting into. We're talking about rights arising out of a marriage and that makes a difference um, once that marriage has been solemnized. Um, The other piece that that I do want to, if it's okay, circle back to is is that language in the findings about decent um, and um, I'm trying to remember exactly what the what the quote <laughs> is um, around around um, respect for diverse beliefs. Depending on who's reading that, it's kind of a Rorschach test. People are going to see what they want there. But I think for for folks who are people of faith who affirm LGBTQ folks who see the option of marriage for those who who see it as as having meaning for them and their spouse. Um, It's really valuable to see in a law recognition that that iteration of faith of being a religious person who believes in marriage equality is deserving of respect 
because so often we hear from the religious right that the quote unquote right way to be a person of faith maps onto a political worldview that stands in opposition to LGBTQ equality. And that just doesn't oh. ring true. For well, that's really interesting. Yeah. So the so the the way that that's exactly the opposite of the way I heard that, and I think in part because the National Association of Evangelicals, in their statement of coming out in support, ta- used almost identical language to talk about why they opposed it. So mm-hmm. when I heard uh, Mary mention that that was part of the bill to support it. I was thinking, oh, that was like a carve out in order to say it's, okay, you know, and so it's really interesting. Both sides really want to cling on to that language that this is a legitimate point of view. And actually, honestly, I'm fine. Think whatever you want to think. Pray however you want to pray. That is exactly the definition of, of freedom of religion. Go for it. But but then when it gets reflected in our laws and affects other people outside of your faith tradition, that's when I start to like bristle and say, well, you don't get to speak for everybody. You don't get to say the faith voice is because that's it. I, 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 it's, a, it's a sentence that's impossible to complete. Uh, and be uh, authentic and honest. So, so this is. I, I thank you for that correction because the way I heard Mary talk about it, I thought that was something that was insisted upon it by was. what? It, it was. was. It, that's so interesting. And so everybody's using it the same. You know, and and so they 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 wanted that in there for their purposes. And I actually I'm preferring to think of it in terms of the way you described it, uh, uh, Katie, which which is also like on all sides. It's fine. And right. And and honestly, you know, I, I don't know. I, I, I want to I, what I want to I, I want to move us to the future, because for my nephews and nieces who have never grown up with anything but seeing me and my husband together, the idea that this is a question mark is like they're just like what? Like what are we even talking about? Why are we having this conversation? For Brad, who's who's you know, and and my generation, the idea that we that this is, it's a miracle almost. It wasn't even something that was a, a thought for me growing up. Uh, and for Brad with his earlier partner who died of AIDS, like they never thought, they never even talked in terms of marriage because it was like an, a, it wasn't even an abstraction. It was like an illusion. Uh, and so. We're we're in a we're in a shift, and and it's only going to go one way. There's almost no way it can go. It, it can't go back. Um. So, but let's think about going forward. And I, I've we've taken up so much of your both of your time, but I just want to one one you know just what's your first thought about the way this bill dealt with religious freedom issues? Like, what can we learn from it going forward, writ large for our society? And I know that's an enormous question, but I just want to hear what your first thoughts on, because what I'm determined to work with coalitions across the board is like, religious freedom can no longer be, the first thought of religious freedom should not be that, how can I discriminate? (laughs) <laughs> and that just feels really important to me. But I, but, but I also like, you know, I know that's so subjective, all that kind of stuff. But, but what, what, how do you understand the, the interplay between a law and religious freedom that can help, like help us move forward and allow people to believe what they believe and think what they think, but also not be used it as a, as a bludgeon against others. Mary, let's start with you. Yeah, it's a tough one. And I'm going to continue to reflect on this because I, it's obviously not every day that you see 
a law like this pass the Congress? So it's a very important question. Um, so I have two thoughts. One is um, Professor Doug Laycock, who, you know, incredibly respected religion, religious liberty scholar, you know, joined with some others to support the Respect for Marriage Act. And in that letter acknowledged that we're not, our nation is not at a place where you can just say religious liberty always wins. It'll, we always be in that camp, whatever that may be, always get what we want, as though there are no other rights involved and no other people and no other interests. That in fact, we are dealing with two crucial interests and that this bill was a path forward for acknowledging, acknowledging both of those interests. There are people, of course, who disagree vehemently, who feel like this is a Trojan horse. It doesn't protect religious liberty, et cetera, et cetera. But it acknowledges the concerns. It acknowledges the state of the law. Um, you know, again, the status quo bill piece. And in thinking about it a little further, I mean, I, this is not a new thought, but it feels newly invigorated, is that whole line about, you know, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and render unto God what is God's. And so when I see the National Association of Evangelicals and, um, you know, the Union of Orthodox Judaism, if I'm saying that correctly, and the LDS Church saying, we want to respect the law and our, and our LGBTQ brothers and sisters, and we also want to have our right to have the marriages that we will solemnize in our faith, I start feeling the the Caesar God thing going on. Um, and I, I don't know how far that would go, um, but I am very intrigued by that possibility. And again, to the extent, just to say, to the extent that this bill helped people to feel reassured that this bill was not going to be used to pose that existential threat, then fantastic. I'm not sure how much of a model that is going forward, but that's exactly what I want to think about. You just gave me the sermon that I need to write, and I'm going to give you proper credit. I'm a, you know, I'm a preacher. And so, like, I think that I've actually, like, that has been a scripture passage that I've been wondering, like, is that, could that be teased out? So thank you for um, offering that, that question. Like, really, like, we can live in a society and figure out how to be our, uh, you know, even when we conflict, we need to understand we're living in a society. And and how can we not fray our society completely um, because of our religious beliefs? Katie, can you bring us home here? Solve all the problems now with your statement, please. <laughs> I'll echo Mary. You know, Interfaith Alliance works on an inclusive vision of religious freedom. And in all of the work that we do, we're conscious that Freedom of belief is one right in a, in a larger constellation of rights that are protected under the Constitution. And so the ability to, to hold the religious views that you do or the non-religious views that you do for plenty of secular folks, freedom of belief is, is crucially important. Um, it requires that all of us um, respect the ability of others to do the same. And I think in the in the process and moving the Respect for Marriage Act forward, we saw some of this play out in real time. Um, we saw these much more um, far reaching amendments that have would that would have taken the bill off course and turned it into something quite different, um, frankly fail. Um, and we saw members what what I would 
consider far right members of the Senate attempt to push their their colleagues to to sign on to their view of what religious freedom means and then get very far. Um, so if we need um, a, a moment of encouragement through this process, even though um, some amendments were necessary to get this across the finish line, ultimately um, the, the view of the religious right of those far right members of the Senate who wanted to enshrine religious freedom as a license to discriminate under the banner of this law, um, they were not successful. It was, it was the very broad coalition of LGBTQ equality advocates, faith-based advocates, business leaders, and so many more who saw this as a question of equal treatment under the law and a way to respect the, the essential rights and dignity of all of us to exist in public life um, under the banner of respect for marriage um, yeah. in federal yeah. law. So yeah. This, yeah. Is, this is a really big win for, for folks who have been working on this for a long time. And also for those of us who are thinking ahead about what religious freedom might look like within the larger context of constitutional protections going forward. Yeah. Yeah. And I just before we before we end, I just want to acknowledge, uh, Katie, all of your amazing work in organizing faith groups, huge array of faith groups. I think we had, you know, literally in the end, hundreds of faith groups sign on to letters in order to say, you know, no, you're not going to speak for the faith community when you come at it from that angle. In fact, we represent millions and millions and millions of people from across faith groups and and acknowledging that, you know, with the work of of others with, uh, you know, we brought new people into that coalition of people saying, like, this is not going to be who we are going forward. So. Katie, I want to thank you um, uh, on behalf of everybody, everybody on that day for the important role you played and that all of us, you know, that, that this was a group effort. And Mary, so much gratitude for all of your work in this over decades and decades. Um, and we just we appreciate it. I'm Mary Bonato is senior attorney at LGBTQ Legal Advocates and Defenders. Katie Joseph is director of policy and advocacy at Interfaith Alliance. Thank you both so much for all of your work and for being with us here today on State of Belief Radio. Thank you so much. What a joy. Thank you. Thank you for your work. Up next, the Reverend Tracy Blackman, Associate General Minister of the United Church of Christ. And later, more clergy reactions to the passage of the Respect for Marriage Act. You'll hear the thoughts of Father James Martin. If you miss any part of today's program, you can hear full episodes of State of Belief anytime on our website. You'll also find links to the topics we discussed this week, extended interviews and transcript, and an archive of past shows, all at stateofbelief.com. You're listening to State of Belief Radio, made for a time such as this. The Reverend Tracy Blackman is Associate General Minister for Justice and Local Church Ministries for the United Church of Christ. She is a deeply spiritual leader who brings faith to bear on issues of social justice and dignity for all people. She is someone who I have admired from afar and had the fortune to be close to on certain occasions. And Tracy, I just want to welcome you to State of Belief and thank you for being with us. 
Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So you have such an extraordinary history of living at the intersection of faith and justice. And I was wondering if you could just give our listeners a little bit of information about your backstory, where you come from, how you come to this uh, kind of extraordinary place of witness that you embody today. Well, sure. Um, That's a loaded question. Um, I am a pastor and um, I served people who live predominantly on the margins of, of society, whether that be because of race or sexuality or economics. Um, and so that has always been the context from which I live and speak. Um, and when you serve in such places, there are always crises and always traumas that have to be attended to. And I come to this work from the pastoral position of, of attending to those. So for me, that means not only being the prophetic, but the priestly depends on what is needed in the moment. Um, and serving in that way positioned me to uh, be a community voice when Michael Brown was killed in Ferguson. I was doing this kind of work before that in different ways, mobilizing people to the polls and uh, making sure that we did our part to increase uh, access um, to food and to clothes and to things other people needed prior to that. But that particular uh, killing kind of catapulted me into a different platform just because I was in the streets there. So that's where most people know me from, but it really has been my life all my life. Right. That doesn't happen overnight. I mean, I I, I remember I was at Huffington Post at that time, and I was, you know, I was interested in the religious response to the killing of of Michael Brown and was, um, and your name kept on coming up. Like, this is the person who's doing the work. She may not be able to talk to you right now because she's actually doing the work. And you may not be able to get to her. But it wasn't because you came to prominence at that time. It's because you were already there and trusted and people turned to you. And I just think that's it's it's an important story. But it's also, you know, as you say, that was not that just introduce more people to you you we were already there and doing that work and now now you you are um you know a national voice and and we're grateful to you um you mentioned sexual orientation and the kind of marginal of communities that you've uh, been a part of one thing that we're talking about today is the respect for marriage act and um and you know the important critical role that religious voices played in the passage of this act and the united church of christ where you are in a leadership role played an instrumental role in that um and we were at interfaith alliance very proud and honored to work alongside the united church of christ to make sure that the religious voice wasn't the one that people normally associate oh the religion it's religion versus the gays or you know something like that instead People like yourself and many, many others have said, no, that's that's a false binary here. Um, I'm just wondering how you're feeling today as you think about the passage of the act and, and some of what it means for uh, the United Church of Christ and for people you uh, serve. Yes, and, and I want to thank you for your partnership on that. Um, 
that was very helpful to us as well. You know, the United Church of Christ, we understand God to be creator of all humankind. Um, and in that role, we understand all human beings to be created in the image of God. Um, and so for us, you know, this is not merely a position or a stance about this law. It is about the dignity and the humanity of all humankind. Um, and we've been on this side for a long time uh, in that regard. The marriage, the right, the respecting of marriage act certainly was critical um, in protecting the rights of same gender loving couples. Uh, and yet it still doesn't go far enough, right? <laughs> um, so it moves us to a place of being able to say that if someone is married, that they would be protected. Um, but quite frankly, if we talk uh, honestly in this moment, the decisions of this Supreme Court have been very frightening in a lot of areas. Um, and LGBTQ rights is not uh, left out of that frightening context. And so, um, we're positioned for the next round of battle, quite frankly. Um, yeah. Yeah. We, we celebrate this. Grateful to have so many UCC ministers on the ground. Some of them were invited to the White House to witness the signing of the act. And certainly we want to take this moment and breathe and say celebrate. But we don't want to be so busy celebrating that we lose sight of what is really in front of us. What this Respect for Marriage Act does is say that if someone is married, you have to honor that, right? Um, but this Supreme Court is also having little ruminations of coming after marriage equality in a larger way, which would mean that federally marriages that exist would be protected. But in states like Missouri, where I live, people would not be able to marry whom they love. And how tragic is that, right? Yeah. Uh, with uh, all yeah, the things yeah. that we could be, you know, climate justice and taking care of the poor, with all the things we could be focusing on, um, that we would try to prohibit people from marrying the people that they love and receiving yeah. the benefits and the rights of marriage that are given to everyone else is really a tragic commentary yeah. on us yeah. as human beings and on us as a nation right now. And um, I'm celebrating, but I'm also calling that out. Yeah, I think that's <laughs> so important. And I wonder if you, like, part of part of what the, the language that at Interfaith Alliance, one of the, the, the language pieces that we want to, what does religious freedom mean? You know, yeah. I mean, there's a lot, there's been for the last, you know, uh, too long, people have met, oh, religious freedom, that gives me the right to, you know, say whatever I want to do whatever I want, as far as I say it's because of my faith. And I'm just wondering, like, for me, religious freedom, yes, you can actually believe whatever you want, and you can even say whatever you want, but you should not be able to do whatever you want when it infringes on the dignity of others. You know, it's meant that religious freedom should be used as, you know, a bridge, not a bludgeon, you know, and, and what we're seeing is, so I want to flip that script. I, I would love to hear how you think of religious freedom and, and what that means for the UCC. Yes. So, uh, so 
Thank you for that question, Paul. I mean, there there has to be a consideration that one's freedom has boundaries when it begins to put other people in bondage, correct? So you are free to believe whatever you want to believe. You're just not free to make me comply with whatever you believe. That's that's the boundary of religious freedom. And I would suggest that anyone who uses scripture as a basis has a difficult time challenging that because God, God self does not even force people to do things or force people to believe things, um, even in scripture, right? And so, it is not about trying to change what you believe, although I think what you believe is, is grossly <laughs> misinterpreted and wrong. It is about preventing you from imposing your religious beliefs on me, right? And whether that's marriage equality, whether that's abortion rights, whether that's uh, trans rights, you don't get to say that your understanding of God should be applied to my life. And my concern with this Supreme Court is that they are making decisions now based on their religious beliefs, which for me invalidates the court altogether, right? Absolutely, yeah. absolutely removes from them this standard of respect and honor that should be afforded the Supreme Court as a place of just deliberations, right? Right. And they're not right. hiding it. Yeah, so, it feels um, it it feels like a it's become an an arm for a thin slice of American religious belief that yes. is being able to be imposed on the rest of us. It, yes. Which is is in some ways like <laughs> the definition of an unfortunate theocratic leaning. And so I just want to, I appreciate exactly you calling that out. I want to, I want to also would love to hear some of the priorities of the United Church of Christ uh, as you look forward to 2023, as we think about going into the future. You mentioned climate change. The UCC has been... uh, in, uh, you know, leading in so many important ways, especially under your leadership. And I, I would just love to hear some of the things that you're thinking about going forward where we should be putting our efforts as people of faith, as people who or or people who maybe don't have faith, but moral conscience and who want to be moving our country and our world in the right direction. Where do you think we should be putting our energies and what 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 is the United Church of Christ thinking in, in those terms? Well, a primary focus of the United Church of Christ's work remains racial justice. Uh, We believe, um, and I think rightfully so, that many of the issues that we face in this country have roots in racism. Um, You could say in white supremacy, but it's really more than that. It's about um, the disrespect and the disregard of non-white persons in this country. And so that for us is global work, not just national work. Uh, We will continue our work to help refugees and those who have been displaced. Uh, We'll continue our work to try to call into a view a rewriting, R-E-W-R-I-T-I-N-G and R-E-R-I-G-H-T-I-N-G, 
uh, a rewriting of history as people are trying to ban books and stop stories from being told. So racism is central to us and racism is central to us, not just from a prophetic standpoint, but from an introspective repentance and repair standpoint. So we're also trying to do that work, right? Of acknowledging that the church has often been the chief colonizer um, in places, not just around black and white, but also with indigenous people, right? And so, um, that will remain a focus of our work. Climate justice is really crucial for us. I read this T-shirt once, and I've been threatening to make them over again, that says, there is no planet B. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> there is no planet I B. I love that. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So if we don't get this right, <laughs> then all the other things are going to pale in comparison. Um, and it is undeniable the greed and... Um, the disregard we've had for our our call to be good stewards over this creation um, and what that means for our children and our children's children um, is critically important. So we continue our work in that way. As you may know, we've uh, the United Church of Christ is the denomination from which the term environmental racism came. And we continue to do studies and work in that regard. Uh, we just instituted some environmental justice fellows uh, from younger people uh, who can help us all through the nation um, amplify this cry for paying attention to justice. And with the new legislation that allows for solar panels, we are working really hard to try to help our churches uh, um, take advantage of that as well. So race and climate justice are huge. And at this intersection that you already mentioned before uh, is always economics, right? So we have not raised the minimum wage in this country since 2009 uh, and everything else has increased, but not the minimum wage. Um, There comes a point where people cannot live on what they are making in this country. And um, that I would suggest plays into our issues of house unhoused people, yeah. uh, plays into our, our um, pet plays into our um, issues with, with not being able to find adequate workers. And if you ever doubted that that was an issue, just look at what happened during COVID when people began to get relief checks, right? It actually was more beneficial for so many workers to not work at all than and get the relief check than to go to work every day, right? right. So right. economic justice is really big for us, especially yeah. as neighborhoods are outpaced, the cost of living in neighborhoods is outpacing many of the residents there. They're being forced out. Right. Uh, I would say these are our three major yeah. issues. Of course, Roe v. Wade is huge for us. Uh, The United Church of Christ was advocating for abortion access and abortion rights before Roe v. Wade. Um, And so this has been really a blow to see women's bodily autonomy under attack again, under attack at a time when we actually have generations who've not known life outside of No, no, this is- Now have to contend with that. So these are the areas focusing. Yeah. And, and one of the things you said at the top, and I want to bring it back around, is that none of this is removed from the kind of pastoral work that the UCC church does. It's because people 
this is what affects people's lives. And yeah. if the church is going to be about anything, it's going to be about people's lives. These are their whole lives. And you can't just say, oh, well, we're going to deal with the spirit and, and good luck here. It's about yeah. the whole life. It's about what, you know, and it's about the whole body, the community. It's not it's not individualistic. It's the community. And so these these issues are all all come back to how we live our lives in a more beautiful, just way in community with one another. And I just think like the mix between the, the spiritual, the pastoral, the prophetic is what, you know, I, I think is really just something I identify with you as a, as a leader and as someone who has exemplified this so much. So I want to thank you as uh, as a, as a fellow um traveler with Jesus and also uh, as a as you know as a as someone a, a fellow uh, citizen of this country who just really appreciates all you're doing for for all of us um, so thank you very much well thank you I, I, I also want to say and that it's also about doing this work with humility understanding that we don't know everything there is to know about God. No one person does. And to presume that we know the mind of God about issues uh, that are facing us is a very dangerous position to take, right? Um, and so it's about humility. You mentioned earlier that people already trusted me. But the other part of that is that I trusted them. I trusted them to know what was best for their lives. I trusted them to know who they love. I trusted them to know who they are, right? And so when you trust people with their own lives, um, then you get a broader understanding and expansive view of God. I don't get to define other people. Um, and that's not the call of ministry and that's not the call of church. Um, the call of church is to open and welcome everyone into a sense of belonging. And sometimes we get confused by that because we think we are actually empowered to decide who's welcome or not. But it's not that. It is that we are called to declare what is already so, that you are already welcomed. You mm. already belong, right? You're already welcomed because we are all here by God's grace. And so I'm so grateful for the work that you and your organization is doing. And, and I have much hope um, that we will be successful in maintaining safety and security and belonging for LGBTQ people, um, particularly the tax on our trans children that's really keeping us up at night and for all the other issues we have to face together. The Reverend Tracy Blackman is Associate General Minister of the United Church of Christ. The denomination has been a strong supporter of the Respect for Marriage Act. Reverend Blackman, thank you so much for being with us here on State of Belief Radio. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Coming up on New Year's weekend, you'll hear an in-depth conversation with Father James Martin, a prophetic Catholic voice on inclusivity and respect for all people in the life of the church and one of the most spiritual leaders I know. Getting together to record that interview this week, I asked Father Jim for his reactions to the signing of the Respect for Marriage Act, 
just the day before. I wanted to include his timely remarks on this week's State of Belief Radio. The signing of the Respect for Marriage Act, I'm just curious how you, as a person who works with a lot of people who um, have are, are same-sex, have same-sex relationships, and uh, how that how that landed with you? I think for a lot of LGBTQ people, as you know, um, it was a source of joy, but more, I think, a source of relief. There were a lot of uh, uh, same-sex couples uh, who I knew who were really worried uh, about uh, some of, um, I guess it was Justice uh, Thomas's uh, comments uh, in uh, in Dobbs, I, I suppose. I'm not a legal scholar. And I had a friend who was thinking of leaving the country because he was so upset. So I think I think really relief um, is, is, yeah. is how it landed with a lot of the people I know. What about you? What was, yeah, what was your no, I, Absolutely. I mean, relief was absolutely the way uh, Brad and I felt, experienced this. I'm just curious. Um, obviously, the Catholic Church is not going to be... Um, uh, acknowledging same-sex uh, uh, couples and and you know I think what was good about the you know is, is that there was space for people to have their own beliefs and their own um, practices I'm sure you're not able to perform same-sex marriages but I know that people who are in relationships with you feel your love and support is, I mean how, how are you able to convey that love and support in a way that obviously doesn't break your um, responsibilities as a priest in the church, but offers them that kind of support? What a great question. I, I think by recognizing the love that exists between them, I think that's the most important thing. I have a lot of friends who are married gay couples, and you know, you, you included. And uh, one of the things I like to share with uh, people who might be suspect of those relationships is just stories about uh, gay couples. I often tell the story of a uh, a gay couple I knew, um, the fellow's name was Carlos. Uh, he was a Eucharistic minister, a lector, a spiritual director, and, um, and a hospital chaplain at Sloan Kettering uh, here in New York City. And he was with his partner, Jim, for years and years. Carlos got sick uh, with cancer, and Jim cared for him for years uh, through surgeries and radiation and chemo and all this. And, and I say to people, you know, is that love, right? Is, is that a form of love? And it, it's very hard for people not to say Yes, it's a, it's a form of love. So I think one of the things I like to do is just to reveal that to people, uh, people in the church especially, and say, we need to look at this as love, and we need to consider this as love. And, uh, you know, and some people, particularly uh, in Germany and Western Europe, are saying we need to recognize it as love, right? Bless these same-sex Within communities. the church. Within the church. Yeah, I mean, Within the Catholic still, church. That's true. Um, there, there's, uh, there's some um, sort of stuff going on in Germany in particular, uh, where the German bishops are talking about possibilities of recognizing or blessing same-sex unions. Now, this gets into kind of technical Catholic stuff, but the dicastery for the doctrine of the faith has said that that's not permissible. But in this run-up to what's called the synod, this kind of worldwide meeting of the church, uh, there are a lot of people that are asking for that. And so, you know, we'll see where that conversation goes. Mm. You know, I just, you know, I want to uh, get into some other um, topics, but I do want to recognize right now the role that you play in allowing people who are so deeply committed to their Catholic faith and Catholic tradition, and you're giving them space. Now, obviously, you're not, you know, performing marriages, but you're giving them space to feel like someone like you who has such standing in the church is also recognizing their love. 
I just feel like that's really it's a it's a beautiful stance. It's a brave stance, and um, and I'm sure it has, is life giving to the countless couples that you know. I hope so, uh, and I hope it's also just recognizing LGBTQ people as the beloved children of God that they are. So you know, even even deeper than uh, people are in relationships. Just saying that these people are are loved by God and are are fully part of the church and really need to be listened to. That's one of the things I really try to encourage Catholic leaders to do is to just listen to their experiences rather than thinking of them as categories or stereotypes. And, you know, Paul, as you know, we've known each other for a long time. This is a relatively new ministry for me, only about five or six years old. Uh, And so, you know, I'm careful not to challenge any church teaching, but within those boundaries uh, to say um, that we need to listen to their experiences and treat them as people, you know, through whom God is working. What is God revealing to us through the LGBTQ community now? And I think it's quite a bit. That is a really beautiful thing. And it's uh, really important to, to mention in the context of there's, uh, the passing of the Respect for Marriage Act that, as you say, offered relief and uh, a sense of full dignity to so many of us, uh, uh, myself included. So I really appreciate those comments. And with that, I'm afraid that's all the time we've got for this week's show. We need your help keeping this show on the air, and I hope you'll consider being a partner in this crucial work by making a financial contribution today. Information on how to donate is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. And you can also be part of making sure informative and encouraging voices like these are heard by sharing this program with friends and family. Let's get more people listening and more people taking part in these conversations, both on and off the air. Never miss an episode by subscribing to the weekly State of Belief podcast on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. And join the conversation. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at State of Belief. And share State of Belief with the people in your life. State of Belief is produced by Ray Kirstein and is a production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member today at interfaithalliance.org. And be sure to join us next week. I can't wait. Until then, I'm Paul Rauschenbusch, and that's State of Belief. I think it's time we stop, children. What's that sound? Everybody look what's going down.